Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, I'm joined by my stepdaughter, Iris Smith, to discuss the re-recordings of Taylor Swift, their aesthetics, and their ethics. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy. summarize the situation that led to Taylor Swift taking on a project to re-record her first six studio albums. Swift left her original record label, Big Machine Records, run by Scott Borchetta, when her contract expired. She had a contract for six studio albums, and the contract was set to expire in, I don't know, whatever year, and then it did, right? And so she left. She didn't leave under bad terms. She left for a better deal. She signed with Republic Records and Universal Music Group in November of 2018. And part of her negotiation with Republic involved her ownership of the masters of her recordings, the master uh, copies of her recordings. So to be clear, everything she's recorded since signing with Republic, Lover, Folklore, Evermore, the new album, Midnight's, she owns the master recordings to all of those. Now, this is relatively unusual. Even very established artists don't own the masters to their recordings at all, or they own a share in them. It's a standard industry practice, especially for an unknown artist, as Taylor Swift was when she first signed with Big Machine. Uh, It's a very standard practice for the record label to own the masters. And this has all sorts of ramifications, and we're going to come back to to why this is the case and what's the importance of the master recordings in just, just a little while. In June of 2019, it was reported that Borchetta sold his label, Big Machine, to the entrepreneur, music investor, marketing director, artist representative, whatever you want to call him, Scooter Braun, right? Very involved in the careers of people like Justin Bieber, uh, Ariana Grande, um, and, and of course, Kanye West. Braun bought the label for the extraordinary sum of $330 million, and this was funded by various private equity firms, right? So investment firms uh, that backed him in this, in this deal. At this point then, Braun effectively owned the masters, the artwork, and the videos for Swift's Big Machine albums. Swift claims she offered to buy the masters. Borchetta insists that never happened. Who knows? Uh, I tend to, to believe Swift, but who knows? Either way, in, in buying Big Machine, it's clear Brown was buying the rights to this music. I mean, she was the big earner on that label by far, right? And she was probably getting the standard uh, royalties on these recordings of somewhere around 10, 15%. Let's, let's be generous and imagine she's getting 20%. Whereas in her current deal, she's getting 50%, right? And she owns, as I said, the masters and of course owns the copyright to the songs themselves. And we'll come back to this, this issue in a moment. Let's summarize where we are with the situation first, right? 
So she's upset for a number of reasons. And one of them isn't just that the masters were sold, but to whom they were sold. She has a longstanding enmity uh, with, with Scooter Braun. She, she blames him in part for his involvement with Kanye West, who, of course, has a longstanding feud with, uh, with Swift. Swift objects not only to his treatment of her at the, at the award ceremony when he interrupts her and takes the microphone away from her. But subsequently, of course, he releases the song Famous in a video that depicts her in bed with him as uh, naked. And it, of course, it's, you know, digital, uh, digitally modified to make it look like she's there. And of course, she's not there. But she felt that this was um, re- revenge porn, as she put it at one point, in the form of a music video. Uh, we won't go into all the details. Braun winds up selling it to another company. That company offers her some um, share in the equity, but Braun made a, an arrangement with that company that he would continue to profit from um, those masters. And so that was objectionable, obviously, to her. Um, so she didn't take that deal. So she decided, uh, first threatened and then started to execute uh, this plan to re-record her first six albums. Now, she can't re-record them all right away. There are limits in the contract as to when she can do that, but there are several of them she can't. So reputation, it'll be a, a few years before she can do that one. But she started with Fearless, right, which is really her breakthrough album. It's her second album. It was first released in 2008, and she re-records it and releases it on April 9th of uh, 2021. Now, this version re- included re-recordings of the 13 songs from the original release, as well as the six songs that appeared on the platinum edition of the album, as well as the song Today Was a Fairy Tale, which was originally recorded for the 2010 film Valentine's Day, in which Swift also appeared as an actor, and then six songs that are supposed to be from the vault that that she uh, supposedly wrote for the Fearless album that didn't get used for whatever reason. And so she's making new recordings of those songs and putting them there as well. So it's a hefty album, in other words, right? The vault songs uh, are, are just make what was already, the platinum version was already quite long, right? And now it's, it's even longer. The song Love Story was the first one that was released. It was released as a single. So this is a song that was a single when it was originally on the first release of Fearless, and now she's releasing it as a single again. And once again, it goes onto the Billboard charts. It reaches the top, actually, of the Billboard Hot Country chart. She hasn't been on the country charts for a long time. Um, oddly enough, I think her last appearance on the country charts was uh, we, we Are Never Ever Getting Back Together, which I hardly consider a country song, but I'm pretty sure that was the last time she was on the country charts. And now she's at the top of it, like rockets to the top of it. She also releases two of the songs as singles that are the From the Vault songs. So You All Over Me, which reached number six on the country chart, and Mr. Perfectly Fine, which reached number two. The album itself reached number one on the Billboard charts, and this is the first time a re-recorded album managed to do that. And the re-recording of Red and Fearless, Red, of course, she released, um, that was originally released in 2010, and she re-released the, or she released the re-recorded version um, on November 12th, 2021. And just to be clear, with both of these versions, they're called by the name of the, the original album, so Fearless, and then in parentheses, Taylor's version. And that's going to be very important in the third segment of today's episode, right? The, the discussion of ethics uh, when it comes to, to these, because she's, she's saying quite clearly that these are, her ver- these are the versions that she owns completely. 
Um, so the re-recordings of Red and Fearless wound up being the two best-selling country records of 2021. So these rework, they're not even reworkings, literal re-recordings, because the attempt here is to be as faithful as possible. We'll talk about that aspect of it in the second segment. Right now, we're just going over the sort of history of it all. Now, in a statement, a very uh, public statement, uh, uh, when she was receiving the Billboard Woman of the Decade Award in December of 2019, um, she makes a statement as to what she's up to, why she's doing this, and the problems that she has with all of this. And part of it is that she feels that Brown is a manipulative bully, as she puts it, right? Um but also the problem of, of the private equity firms. She says that private equity is buying music as though it were real estate, an app, or a shoe line. And that's very interesting, right? Because we, we saw in the last episode that she's trying to portray music as art, not, uh, not a stretch for most people, right? And that for her, art is along the lines of a rare painting, Right? It's, a, it's a rare, valuable thing. But of course, music is a different thing. Music is mass distributed. It's, uh, when, when you go into pretty much any mall in this country and you stay there for a, a long enough time, you're probably going to hear a Taylor Swift song. It's hardly rare, right? The radio stations are playing it and so on. The, you can hear these songs all the time. They're hardly rare. Also, the idea that... that music would differ that much from real estate or an application or a shoe line is an interesting right in some ways she's denigrating these other three things as though real estate is, is real estate's a, a true rarity in some ways right the idea of buying a relatively limited amount of land again i'm not arguing for or against her argument i'm just finding places in it that i i think are of interest but a shoe, the shoe line is, is particularly interesting, right, as well, because, of course, you can invest in any of these things, just like you can invest in music. These are all businesses. And a shoe line, a shoes are also mass-produced. And I would imagine shoe designers think that what they are doing is art, uh, probably much along the lines of what Taylor Swift is laying out. But she's, she's trying to create this kind of exceptionalist argument, in a way, for music as art that I find difficult to execute in some ways. And yet, obviously, a lot of people don't. Um, a lot of people are very much ready to sign on to this. Now, let's clear up a few things. First of all, why the masters? Why is that such an important thing? There are basically two copyrights. We've said talked about this in previous episodes. Two elements of copyright in a song, right? There's a straightforward copyright of basically the sheet music, right? And then it was eventually extended to include the arrangement. But basically, the written elements of the song, whether it's recorded or not, you can copyright. So the lyrics, the melody, the, the chord progression, and so on, right? You can't, cor- uh, you can't exactly copyright the chord progression as such, uh, usually, because the chord progressions are, are used in multiple places. But it's the, the combination of all those things, the things that make that song that song can be copyrighted. And of course, as the primary songwriter of pretty much everything she's put out, if not everything she's put out, she owns that copyright, right? So anytime her song is um, being played in whatever situation, she is given whatever percentage that amounts to. But the other element of copyright is the mechanical right, which we've talked about in several episodes, right? And the mechanical right has to do with whenever that recording is played or, or reproduced. So Every reproduction, every copy, whether it's on a CD or a digital download or a, an album, every copy of the original, the master recording, uh, has a, a 
um, fee associated with it, right? And that is especially important when it comes to so-called synchronization rights. So when a film, or better yet, a commercial, or, or a um, film trailer, which is essentially a commercial, those are very lucrative places to have your music appear. And every time a song that's already copywritten appears in a film trailer or in a commercial, both of those copyright elements apply. The songwriter uh, gets their cut for the song as such, and whoever owns the masters gets a cut for the use of that recording. So what Swift is essentially doing in trying to... to re-record and therefore own both the masters and the um, the song copyright is she's trying to get the full amount that she can from the music that she created, right? Now, what's important to realize is it's not at all rare for artists to have signed away the ownership of the master recordings. In fact, that is the rule. Her new deal with Republic Records, that's the exception, not the rule, Right. And so I'm not. Uh, we'll talk more about the the ethical moral argument that she's making in the third segment of this of this episode. But if we're just looking at it from a a long standing business practice, this is not. It's not considered at least usury, right? The record company's the ones that's taking the um uh, the risk early on. Uh, that's taking the financial risk. That has all the connections. They they own the masters so that they can. Uh, recover some of those costs, especially through synchronization and so on, right? Um, other bands and artists have also engaged in re-recording for some of the same reasons, right? Uh, when Frank Sinatra started Reprise Records, he re-recorded some of his big hits so that he could put it out on his own label and therefore own um, the, the master recorded copyrights. Of course, Frank Sinatra didn't write his own songs, uh, so he didn't get that element of the, of the copyright. So he was after the, the copyright element, the mechanical right that would have gone along with the master recordings. If you're a fan of uh, early rock and roll, you may sometimes be looking for an original um, recording and you go to YouTube or you go to Spotify and, and you know something's not quite right. <laughs> That's because a lot of those artists uh, for various synchronization deals and so on would re-record sometimes decades later songs that were hits. Sometimes it's quite hard to find original recordings of, of the more obscure tunes. Of course, the really famous ones are not as difficult to, to find, but um, this Diamond Ring, right? Uh, that, that's a song that was uh, an oldie uh, and, and has been re-recorded several times. DMX re-recorded several of his songs when he was releasing them as a best of on a best of album in order to um, get a greater share of the copyright that way. Def Leppard in uh, 2012, re-recorded some of their hits, like like Hysteria and Portion Sugar on Me, um, basically because they were in an argument with their former um, record label over digital rights, over the exact thing we're talking about. Uh, remember the 2012, right? That's just as Spotify was really starting to, to gain some kind of dominance, as we discussed in the last episode. And so Def Leppard was looking to get a more um, equitable cut of the digital rights, and the record label refused. And so the, the band re-recorded. And as Joe Elliott, the singer of Def Leppard, said in an interview with MTV, quote, I think we did a pretty good job. It's hard work to re- trying to recreate something you did 30 years ago, end quote. 
And there's a similar thing, of course, and that's part of what we'll talk about in the next segment, going on with Taylor Swift. It's not, it's not of course, 30 years ago. It wasn't really a full 30 years even for Def Leppard. Um, but still, many years have gone by, right? And so this this notion of re-recording something you did when you were quite young. Taylor Swift's first album came out when she was, what, 16 years old? And now she's... Um, in her early thirties, right? So uh, this is this is quite a, a stretch back in some ways. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting about the Def Leppard situation is part of of their reason for doing this had to do with synchronization rights. There was a Tom Cruise movie coming out called Rock of Ages, and so that song was going to be used in that film, and they wanted to get the full uh, income that they could get from that, so they re-recorded it for that, but. Joe Elliott, the, again, the singer for Def Leppard, calls these re-recordings forgeries. And I think that's very interesting. Now, keep in mind, first of all, they didn't re-record, or at least haven't re-released an entire re-recording of any of their albums. It was a handful of songs. And so the idea of them being forgeries, that they recognize that what they're doing, and they, they are, once again, quite faithful recreations, just as a lot of the recreations uh, that we'll talk about in the next segment of Taylor Swift's are, are quite f- faithful. Uh, he still, he doesn't think of them as the real thing. They're forgeries. They're meant to goad the former uh, record label into some kind of action. All right. So that leaves us with a number of questions to explore, both aesthetic questions, which we'll deal with in the next segment, and ethical questions, which we'll deal with in the third segment. What is the point of listening to music that sounds so much like the music you already own. Why get a new copy of something that you already have and know quite well? What uh, what does this have to do then with charting success? I mean, we can say, well, uh, uh, the Billboard charts just track sales and digital um, streams and so on, right? And so it's just a uh, objective measure. And yet it's not treated as an objective measure. We've talked about that in past episodes. It has a qualitative aspect to it. It's a, a signifier of something. So what does it mean for her to get another bite at the apple, so to speak, with that, right? And then if if we're saying that this is about ownership, and this is about her getting her rights and her due desserts, then are we bad people if we listen to the original? Let's discuss those things in the next two segments.
for the next two segments, I'm joined by my stepdaughter, Iris Smith, to discuss first the aesthetics and then the ethics of Taylor Swift's re-recordings. Hi, I'm Iris. So let's start with... Um, with the sort of big picture, right? Obviously, the the re-recordings have more than just the original songs on them. There's there's added elements, and so part of the aesthetic pleasure, I would imagine, in in listening to uh, these expanded albums, is the expanded nature of them, right? That you're getting more, it's added value in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I feel like because these tracks were originally supposed to be on the album, but they weren't because of the fact that having like an album with 30 songs is kind of a lot. She had to cut them. And I feel like now that she released the full albums with 30-something songs on them, um, the vault tracks just give it like so much more personality. And I feel like it feels like the completed story. Like once you are exposed to the re-recording with the vault tracks, and it's like this is the full picture, it's kind of difficult to go back to the older version where it doesn't have all those songs. I think she's at that level now where she can get away with releasing an album with 30-something songs, and it's still profiting and getting on the charts and everything like that. I mean, it's interesting that you used the, the term get away in yeah. a sense, right? Because uh, so you, you say a couple things that are interesting there, right? The, on the one hand, it's, it's a fuller picture, and it sounds to me like part of how you're understanding it is that this is the album as it would have been made had there not been financial and just straightforward career uh, impediments yeah. to that, right? The fact that she was, at, when she released these albums, not at nearly as established as she is yeah. now uh, and not nearly on the level of fame that she's at, uh, she's at now. Um, but couldn't an argument be made that, that in a way this dilutes it, that, that these are sort of also rands that they're not they're not at the same level as the original album or that they muddy the waters in some way yeah i think that can definitely be argued i think it at the end of the day that will just come down to like individual opinion personally i feel like the vault tracks for both um fearless taylor's version and red taylor's version added to the album and were good vault tracks and that they brought a better version of the album with them like i feel like they added a lot to the album um i don't I haven't listened to any of her vault tracks and been like, this is just filler. Mm. Like, I don't really think it feels like filler to me. I think that her releasing them now is just adding a lot to the overall sound of the re-recordings. And it's also giving the fans something to, like, look forward to. Because it's like, of course you're excited for your favorite artist to release music. But if she didn't release the vault tracks, I mean, it's just you've heard the songs before. So it's still exciting because it's she owns it and it's her version. But... I feel like as fans, we'd be more excited given the fact that there are vault tracks. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we have something like, these are new, this is new music, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And it kind of just brings more to the era. And- well, let me ask two questions related to that then. Because uh, it's significant, obviously, that they're called vault tracks, yeah. right? I mean, what is the, uh, the, the notion of a vault is that here's something that's been locked away, it's been yeah. preserved <laughs> and kept. But like a lot of these songs, were, it's not like she's releasing recordings that she made yeah. a decade ago. These are new recordings. Uh, there's even, I don't know if you've seen this, but for, for uh, um, All Too Well, the, the line about the uh, fuck the patriarchy or whatever, yeah. uh, there's a whole article on Decider or some website like that that's like trying, well, back when she originally wrote the album, there's no way anyone would have said <laughs> yeah. this phrase, you know, and obviously it's a little silly. But at the same time, there's this sense that with that article, let's take that article as our example, there's a sense that if they're really from the vault, 
and they're and she's really being genuine about it being from the vault then they can't have been changed or rearranged or reworked yeah. or added to or so i mean is that significant to you as a listener this idea that 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 because when, when i think of opening the vault right yeah. i think of like i don't know let's say a fine wine right i bought a fine wine 50 years ago i put it in a vault 50 years later i open it and ah this pristine fine yeah. wine right the sense that it's been there the whole time i haven't messed with it and here it's coming out. But that's not quite what's going on with the vault tracks, right? Yeah. No, um, I think the vault tracks are really interesting to me because I, I honestly do think she genuinely wrote them at the same time as she was writing the other songs mm-hmm. and the album, and she just put them away and brought them back. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, two two main points, I feel like, that I should bring up. The first is, in her documentary, she mentioned, like, she still has, like, her first songwriting book ever. Like, she keeps all her journals with all her songs in them. So mm. it would make sense for her to be like, oh, I'm releasing the re-recorded Fearless. Let me grab my notebook of songs I wrote during Fearless and put some out there. So that's one reason why I think, like, she genuinely did write these songs. And another reason is when you compare the Fearless Vault tracks to the Red Vault tracks, the lyrics for the Red Vault tracks are significantly more mature and well-written than the Fearless ones. Interesting. Like, the album as a whole is to Fearless because Fearless was her um, second album. So, of right. course, like, she's still getting into the business. It's like, she's younger. Obviously, her lyrics aren't going to be as heavy or as, like, well-written as they are when she gets older. So, like, if you compare Mr. Perfectly Fine, the Vault right. track... I was to, wondering like, if you mentioned that yeah. track. Yeah. I mean, I love that track, but right. lyrically, like, it's not, it's not, you know, there's, uh-huh. it's not as mature as, like... All Too Well 10 Minute Version or like other vault tracks like Better Man or I Bet You Think About Me. Like those tracks um, are a lot more lyrically mature and heavier than the Fearless vault tracks. And I feel like if it was that thing where she's like, oh, I'm just going to write these tracks now and say they were from the vault. I feel like she wouldn't be able to. Right, but there's that. I don't. I don't. First of all, let's let's be clear. I don't think that she's just writing new tunes and pretending they're from you know a decade ago. But but a songwriting book can be a number of things, right? Hank Williams had a very famous and very extensive songwriting book, but it was just lyrics. So when he died, and there were a bunch of songs in there that hadn't been recorded, he might have come up with music for it, but we don't know what that is. So there's a really interesting album of country music artists and 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 some rock and roll artists doing those songs. But of course, they basically wrote the songs with his lyrics you know and I mean there might be that might not I don't know you know that's that's part of the I think it's definitely interesting yeah all right, let's take a, a, a what I think a, a philosophy major might like <laughs> in in a discussion of this kind of thing. Let's think about love story, right? Okay. Where you have the original release and then the re-recording and for the life of me, I, I, I listen to these tiny details that I can pull out that are different. Um, it sounds, when you first hear it, to me at least, and you'll tell me from your perspective if you feel otherwise, but to me at least, it sounds like a remix at first. I, yeah. you know, she's got a lot of the same players. They're, uh, it sounds to me like they're using the same instruments. <laughs> you know, basically, it's, it's really, really close. There's a level on the guitar that's different. There are these little production elements that would have been different in a, in a remix anyway, right? And, yeah. By remix, I don't mean like a dance remix. No, I get what you're yeah, saying. yeah, like a remastering. Yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, the individual notes on the guitar fills are the same. Like so much of it's the same. And I got to the point where, like, I noticed that when she says the word starts, uh, she stresses it on the original in a way that's not on <laughs> yeah. the rewrite. Like that kind of minutia, yeah. you know. So. The differences are so minor that I literally get confused. At one point, I put them in the garage band back to back so I could toggle between the two, yeah. you know, and, and I would get lost as to which one I was actually on. So then the question then becomes like, 
just let's for a moment put on blinkers, right? And just imagine that's the only song we're talking about. And they're, and they're so close to, that the differences are so minor that it's really production elements. Is there an aesthetic difference listening to one versus the other? Leaving aside all the ethical issues for now, like, is there an aesthetic difference, do you think? In terms of love story? Yeah. No. Yeah. Because they are so similar. If I honestly would have a hard time differentiating if you played one and didn't tell me which one it was. Like, that's how similar love story is. Yeah. So in terms of that specific song, like, if we're putting on the blinkers and just talking about that, No. Like like you said, the very minor differences, like stresses on different words, and like you could still hear like a really, really, really faint, like more of that Taylor country a- a- accent in mm. the original love story. Mm-hmm. Like you can just kind of tell it's there, but um, for the most part, it's pretty much the same song. Um, it's produced really, really similarly, so I don't think there would be any slight differences. But like I have a like idea as to how like if we're taking the blinkers off and we're comparing it with the other songs like uh-huh. you belong with me we talked right. about that how that does sound different like you can yeah. tell i feel like and this might be like a stretch so but i feel like because love story is like a single she sings like love story everywhere like that is her was her biggest point. song i yeah. feel like she trained herself as she grows up to keep singing that song the same way because she sung it at like every single concert she's ever done because it's like her big one of her biggest hits so she's like trained herself to sing Love Story. I feel like now that she's re-recording it, she's been singing it the same way she sang it when it came out. As for You Belong With Me, she kind of had to sing it. Or like the other songs in the album, she had to just re-sing it. But with Love Story, it's like she didn't have to worry about trying to mimic those like mannerisms and certain like stressors on the song because she's been singing it for so long. That's an excellent point. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, let's think a little bit more about You Belong To Me and songs like that because one of the things that you see a lot with critics talking about these re-recordings is that on the one hand, they value the fidelity. Oh, she's not trying to remake the albums. She's really trying to, in a sense, recreate them as they were, right? Yeah. As opposed to reinventing them or reimagining them. And that's a, to me, that's a sort of interesting value. Right? And I'm not saying it's not a, it's a good or a bad value. It's just interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, one could say, well, why would I want to hear somebody do the same thing they've done a bunch of, she puts so much stress herself on the idea of being an evolving artist don't I want to hear how she's evolved right you yeah. can you can imagine that kind of argument but so but right now we're not talking about my arguments we're talking about <laughs> critics and the critics tend to say well they admire the the uh, fidelity but when they talk about a difference the difference they admire is the maturity they hear in her voice yeah and that's interesting to me because that means that there's a sort of they're they're valuing obviously the notion of maturity, but isn't one of the things especially I mean obviously she hasn't re-recorded her um, her self-titled album yet her debut album, but one of the things that's kind of charming about that album like the song Tim McGraw and so on which yeah. you know it's not my favorite song by her but it's still there's a charm to it yeah. is that kind of she sounds young she yeah. sounds innocent she or, I mean and is that really like young like super heavy country like Nashville sound that she was pushing at the time so I definitely think um when she does like re-record debut that's gonna be the most drastically different unless she tries to like mimic that kind of sound but um no it's like it even bleeds through and like all of the songs so far like you can tell her voice has matured greatly which I really like and appreciate to hear but it also brings up the point of what if you like that more yeah, a, like which, we'll, sound. which we'll talk yeah. about more in the next segment because that, that falls into an ethical argument in yeah. a way. But uh, 
but I, I still I find it really like I don't want to hear it's my party and I'll cry if I want to the the oldie tune I don't want to hear that song by a mature woman that, <laughs> the the point is that it's a, a song about a girl who's crying in a way that feels both inappropriate and yet you know she feels it's her party she'll do what she wants right yeah uh, I guess that there's this question to me like why is that um, with these critics why is that a sort of unexamined value. That's ultimately yeah. right because they're both kind of unexamined values. Fidelity, which we often think of fidelity as value. I mean, right? Faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in whatever, right? Um, so we often think of fidelity as a sort of unexamined value, but but maturity, in this sense, in an aesthetic sense, isn't always one, right? I mean, I don't know, like like the films of Kevin Smith, Clerks is the best. I, I can say that unabashedly, right? And that's his immature beginning student film or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we've killed that one, but um, all right. So let's let's move on to one that is deeply expanded, right? And uh, when when she redid Red, uh, there's a song on there, and some critics online think of it as their best song, and thought of it as their best song even before the re-recording, but now there's a lot of sort of talk about this being one of her best, most emblematic songs, and that's, of course, all too well. And on the original and in the the re-recording in the main chunk of the album, it's a roughly five-minute song. Yeah. And there's an interview from way back uh, when the album first came out where she's talking about she had all this, that, that basically it came out of um, an improvisation she was doing with her band. Uh, which makes sense in a way because the chord progression is very much of that era. And I'll get just a little nerdy for just a second. Uh, The chord progression is basically one, five, six, four. Now, if you look up that chord progression on YouTube, you'll see all these videos that juxtapose a bunch of songs from that era that all have that same chord progression. Like, it was the most overused chord progression of the early 2000s. (laughs) Like, it's everywhere, right? Um, so you can imagine this being something that the band was jamming out to as here's this kind of, you know, bland chord progression. It's also easy to sing over um, for a number of reasons, right? There's there's a lot of, of common tone in it. So if you think of the, that chord progression in the key of C, right, then you have C, G, A minor, F. Well, the C, A minor, and F all have the note C in it, right? Um, the... the uh, the the A minor and the F share a note A, and the G and C both share a note G. So you have this sort of implied voice leading that's that's already there. That's very simple to create a ton of variations around. So you can understand how it might have come out of an improvisation. She said that, that they were playing and she was sort of singing about things that were on her mind and it came out as this very long thing. And so she took it to Liz Rose, who had been her collaborator on a lot of songs on the first two albums, but not on Speak Now, of course, because Speak Now is basically just her. Yeah. Um, and she took it to Liz Rose, who helped edit it. And and in the interviews at the time, says you know that's what made it a better a better song. But now, of course, we have this this ten minute version, and it's it's interesting to me. To I'm going to suggest something, and I'm curious to see what you say about. It. I think it's a very different song. Like yeah. I think it means something totally different. I think it has a very different narrative structure. There there are elements of the lyrics that I think are very improved in this version. There are elements of the music that I'm not so sure are improved. Yeah. So I think um, the first version is like, it's a typical, it's like a heartbreak song, you know? It's like, she's describing what she went through 
And then the 10-minute version, it's, like, the entire story. Like, she, um, just listening to the original version, you wouldn't kind of know the all the backstory behind it. And you could kind of just be like, oh, like, speculating what it's about. You sort of the general vagueness of the song. But the 10-minute version, you know who it's written about, just based off of, like, the remarks put in it. I feel like it's, like, the 10-minute version is like a story. Like, she's directly telling us, here is what happened. And I, she added in all these lyrics that really bring the story together. And, like, there are some certain things in the song. Like, there are two lyrics that she says in this version that weren't in the original version. She says, um, I'll get older, but your lovers stay my age. And right. then she says, um, if we had been closer to in age, maybe this would have been fine. Um, it's just like, you know who it's about when she's saying stuff like that. So it really gives it the full story when she's adding in lyrics that are like that personal and that like deep. So I feel like it is a very different song because I feel like the first song was really good and was one of her songs, but I feel like the second song is more of like a story. Uh-huh. Like, you know, does that make sense? So it's mostly the, the narrative elements that, yeah. that you've, and, and I, you know, there's the image of the, the 21st birthday party is my favorite part of the yeah. song. And that's not in the original, you know, that, yeah. or, or, as it was released anyway, um, where the, the father says, you know, you're supposed to be having fun, not staring at a door, yeah. you know, which is kind of cool. I don't know how intentional it is or it doesn't matter really, but the first image in the song is of a door, right? They yeah. get through a door and it feels like home. And now she's looking at a door. She is yeah. home. She's looking at a door and waiting for this guy to come through. It's not yeah, and there's through. a lot of like strong symbolism in that song, like the door. And I think the biggest one's the scarf. Mm-hmm. The scarf is like the huge thing. Yeah, all too well, she sells yeah. scarves on her website. Like yeah. it's it's the biggest thing. From All Too Well, I feel yeah. like. Jake Gyllenhaal's sister, Maggie Gyllenhaal, yeah. uh, complains in various interviews <laughs> that she's constantly asked about this scarf yeah. and whether or not he actually still has it. And Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that Taylor confirmed there was no scarf. It's just a metaphor. Like, she just uh-huh. made it for a metaphor. And she said, I'm not going to say, I, I remember this vividly. She's like, I'm not going to say what the metaphor is, but it's a metaphor. There was okay. no actual scarf left at Jake Gyllenhaal's sister's house. But I just think that's really funny how, like, that could be yeah. such a big thing especially after the short film came out and you see the scarf and it's like oh like that became the big symbol of that song right right yeah i want to talk about the short film a little bit but i want to dig down a little more into the into the song as it as it kind of stands there are a couple of, of there, this time you don't hear it as just a remix even the very opening bars are mixed differently and have uh, slightly uh, different things going on, right? The earlier version, the the original red version, and and even the re-recording of the you know the main song, the five minute version, yeah, has a pretty straightforward um, mix, right? The, the guitar's over in the left of the of the stereo, but it's fairly recognizable as a guitar. So, but the the ten minute version, it's got this watery, muddy kind yeah. of. Um, glaze yeah, uh, like auditory glaze over it it's very different and like especially the um the parts that are the same in the 10 minute version the all too well still sound completely different like yeah exactly even in yeah. the re-record like right. if you take the re-recorded regular version the re-recorded 10 minute version and you crop the 10 minute version so it's just the parts right. that are in the original they're not, they're the, not same. the same at all right and i think that's because for the 10 minute version she really just wanted to take that new approach almost as if it was a completely new original song that's part of what i'm wondering like to me i feel like the song is very different yeah and and the film kind of backs this up to a certain extent because the original song, like you said, it's a it's a bitter breakup tune, and there's some ambiguity in it and so on, but it's not just the ambiguity. By the time you get to that outro, which, you know, is 
to my mind, not the musically strongest part of the song. But when you get there, it's much more, it's less about her. It's more about, you know, you know it too, all too well, don't you? Don't you? Don't you? And there's something, it brings out something that is in the original that I think is interesting with that song. Like, let's just ask it this way. Like, what is that song about in a deeper sense other than just the breakup? For instance, she says constantly, I was there. I remember it all too well. Yeah. Right there's uh, there's a kind of interesting play there because yeah. when you're there you're not remembering something you're there and when you're remembering something you're not there yeah. so you could say you say I was there but your memory of it is sort of in some ways validated by the notion that you were there but you're not there now the thereness is gone yeah you know so, and I think that's kind of like. She feels like she's still there because she's so haunted by what happened. I feel like that's what she's trying to stress is like, even though the relationship is over, she still feels like she's in it and still like experiencing it and living it and going through it because of how vividly she remembers everything that had happened to her. I feel like she's like, I'm still there, like kind Uh of just haunted by it. Uh Uh-huh. And so would you say that the longer version then is, is that, but also... It's giving wanting him to still be yeah. there. Well, I think it's like I think the longer version. It's she's still there, but she's also. I think it is wanting him to be still yeah. there too because mentally. Yeah. I don't mean like yeah. No, yeah, 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 mentally. Yeah. And I also think it really gives more context to why she's so haunted about it. Like the like it gives more information and more like verses and specific like story building and scenarios that lead you to understand why she's so haunted as opposed to in the original version where of course it says like sad lyrics it's like oh this is what happened we broke up it was sad but I feel like the examples are so specific in the yeah. Tender version there's so much more content there it's giving more context and it's making it easier to understand why this relationship had such an effect on her which is I mean it's interesting that you keep stressing the part that you know without a doubt now who it is, yeah. right? Because in an interview with Seth Meyers on, on his talk show, she said that one of the things that was nice about uh, when she was first releasing Red, she was nervous because there were all these personal songs. It was like putting her heart on display. But now everyone knows the song, so you don't have to... Of course, that's not true of the vault songs, but but she, yeah. she didn't mention that distinction. She just said, now I feel like I can just put on sunglasses and sip a mojito or something like that. I forget exactly <laughs> what she said. Uh, but this idea that she, it's a, more of a nonchalant, I'm glad to have it out, but I'm not fretting over it. Yeah. Because all the sort of all that stuff is done but in a way I mean she's still working on that level of inviting that kind of curiosity right yeah yeah and like no matter what she puts out people are gonna wonder who's this about right. like no, no matter what and she knows that so yeah I feel like like especially now with her vault tracks and like some of her new stuff that she's been writing it's like I don't think she's trying to be like low-key about it or like she's trying to like distract like put a guise over who it could be I think she's just writing what she wants to write and writing it specifically so that I feel like now like you know what the song is about or who the song is about or like what time period the song is about just because of the way that she pours her heart out in it right I feel like it's comes across more vividly now especially and I feel like all too well 10 minute version is the best example of that Uh uh-huh just like Writing without limits, like she's just right, putting it all out there. Well, that's the. Uh, I don't want to go too much 
longer on this, but I, but that is an interesting point, right? That song is now the longest song to reach the top of the Billboard chart. Yeah. Um, before that, it was American Pie, right? <laughs> bye bye American Pie, and so on. That that had been on, that had had that record for decades now. Yeah. You know, and and uh, Don McLean, who who of course uh, American Pie, uh, was very gracious about it. You know, he said if I was going to be bumped off, it, it's good that it was a songwriter of her caliber or whatever. Um, but I don't know. Do you think that that song would have? I mean, it didn't reach the top of the charts before. Is it? Do we hear the song as the song? Or do we hear it as, oh, this is a song I know with these little added Easter eggs or these added yeah. little bits that clarify? Like, are we always sort of stuck listening to the 10-minute version as an expansion? Even though we've both said it's quite different in it's many ways. Yeah. Like, can we ever innocently hear it in a sense if we know the original and with, with all the weight that that one had? Yeah. I honestly think it that is another thing that comes down to preference and opinion because they are so different. Personally, I still view them as two separate entities in my mind, huh. but um, I will often just listen to the 10-minute version one just because it's like, I would rather listen to the song I love that's more, like that has more, you know? And okay. I feel like person- for me personally, the 10-minute version brings more and so improves the song, but I also think if you're not as much into the storytelling element and you're more into just like the raw song, mm. then maybe just a regular version would be better for you. Um, that's why I'm glad she still like recorded right. the version, so it's like you have a choice. Um, but no, I think I think they should be thought of as like two separate entities because even though they are the same song in a sense, yep. they're so different. It's like it's like a novel and its sequel. Like they're kind of the same, but and in the same story and the same characters in the same versions. But the other the like part of it has more to it, and it goes in deeper, like stuff like that. Right. Okay. Well, when we return, we'll turn to a different topic, which is, of course, the ethics of, uh, of all of this. Is it ethical for uh, someone to listen to the old versions? Is there an argument to be made there? Or are you a bad and toxic person <laughs> if you don't listen to the re-recordings? We'll, we'll come back on that.
it seems to me that there are probably several ethical issues one might explore with these. And we sort of touched a little bit on one already, this idea of, in a way, opening old wounds. You know, if, if the song's about Jake Gyllenhaal and it was already released and everyone was already speculating. And now it's an expanded version. Look, I can show you just how bad this guy really was. Uh, you, you might say there's an ethical issue there. Um, but that's sort of one that people have discussed with Swift so often that it's, I'm not sure it's as interesting. One of the things that, anymore, one of the things that um, did come up, though, a lot when these were first re-released as an ethical argument was the possibility of her winning a Grammy, right? Um and, and just the idea of billboard charting on, on billboard um, charts, period, with these, these songs. Uh, you know, she hadn't been on the country charts, for instance, since, um, oddly enough, uh, I, uh, We Will Never Ever Get Back Together, which is not really a country song, yeah. but that was the last time she was on the country charts. Um, and then, of course, you know, she's, she dominates the country charts in 2021 with these re-releases, now, there are a couple of things to be said here um, before we get into it. It turns out that, uh, uh, that she removes herself from consideration for the Grammys or the CMA Awards. And so that might already sort of give us a sense of her sense of what the ethics yeah. of all this are. Although, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if her making a statement about sort of ethics in a strong way, did she? I don't think she did. Right. Um or at least not one that was super well heard or like uh-huh. viral or anything. So I no, I don't think so. Yeah, um, but of course you can't really withdraw yourself from from Billboard charts, yeah. right? And and she does dominate those charts. Uh, the love story, of course, goes to number one. Um, Mister Perfectly Fine uh, charted. I think it was number six or something. Yeah. And then you know I don't remember. Um, but but all the the singles from the re-release of Fearless charted, and the singles from Red charted, um, and a lot of them were vault chart uh, vault songs, and so those don't in a way have any real ethical issue because they're new songs for all intents and purposes. Um, but both Fearless and Red, actually in the opposite order, Red and Fearless were the number one and number two country music albums of 2021. Yeah. Let's say that you're Iris Smith, the country music, up-and-coming country music star. How do you feel about that? You, you have this yeah. uh, amazing album in 2021, and here are these two albums that were, you know, a decade old yeah. or more at this point. I, I feel like from the perspective of artists who are coming out with brand new music and their whole album is brand new, they're obviously not going to be super thrilled that an album that came out a, like a while ago is now back and beating them. When they have like new original music, so and I think that is a big reason why she's taking them out from like Grammys and yeah. Country Music Awards because those are like the heavy hitter shows. Yeah, that makes sense. As for Billboard, she's so big that she was gonna chart Billboard. So right. it's like it makes sense why she's the Billboard Awards. She would get it because of the fact that she just conquered the Billboard charts with it. Um, but no, I I think that ethically she was right to draw herself out from consideration for those bigger award shows um but of course i do think her vault songs are fair game at yeah, award shows because yeah. like they're original but yeah. the albums as a whole i do think she made the right move withdrawing them from consideration from the grammys and the cmas i i suppose the the biggest uh, at least from from what i gather to be her point of view uh ethical issue really is is on the other side right the idea of of 
one ought to by Taylor's version, and they're you know they're called Taylor's version for a reason that, that, yeah. that they, she feels she most fully owns those, uh, and that one by, by the very statements that she's made about the whole situation and the idea of an artist owning their music and and that this is a wrong that should be righted, and then we as listeners then participate in writing that wrong by buying the right version. Right. And listening to and it's not just buying. Right. In fact, it's probably more about streaming, which takes us back in some ways to the idea that these are 30 track albums. I mean, would they would they work as physical objects in, for as many people as they obviously work uh, as, as streaming objects? Right. I mean, I know they're available as physical objects, but. But they're primarily streaming objects, right? I mean, ultimately, the the jousting she did with Spotify, she eventually had to give up. It was yeah. inevitable, right? We're in a streaming world, and uh, and that's a big part of it. So if I stream then, right, the old version, is there something ethically questionable about that, in your opinion? Yeah, I don't think there's anything ethically questionable or like I wouldn't say I wouldn't say you're like a bad person for not listening to the new versions or like it's not that kind of thing I guess I I don't understand um listening to the original versions when the newer ones are out because like the newer ones do have stronger vocals and production but I can see from the like nostalgic point of view but also that also poses the question of like if you're getting nostalgic from listening to the album in full like just sitting there and listening to the original album in full, that would, and at least for me, I feel like that would signify that you are a fan of mm-hmm. Taylor Swift and of her music and of that album. So why would you stream something that's not benefiting like the artist really in that big of a way? But also in terms of like that younger sound, that different sound, because they are different, which we mm-hmm. talked about in the aesthetic segment. That's just up to preference. But But at the end of the day, like, it's music, and I don't think you're a bad person for listening to an older version. Yeah, I just I, I don't well, it's think interesting it would be ethically what, wrong. What you said though, because I mean, you're saying you don't think it would be ethically wrong, <laughs> but you kind of made a case for it being ethically wrong because yeah, you're like, like, well, if you're listening to it, well, why wouldn't you listen to the version that yeah. benefits the artist? But that, how much benefit does she need? She's a mega <laughs> superstar. She's got okay. a lot of money. That's true, but I feel like it's just more of like if you're a fan of Taylor Swift. You just listen to her versions because that's her, like... But they're all her versions. That's true, She might not own the the full rights to the older ones, but those older ones were the original (laughs) document. When I listen to, you know, uh, music from the 80s, I want to hear the music from the 80s. I don't want... Or, you know, I mean, the example I use in the first segment is is what? uh, This Diamond Ring, right? Gary Lewis and the Playboys. uh, You want to hear the original version. Another good example is the Mills Brothers, Paper Doll. There's a ton of different versions by the Mills Brothers from from the... 40s and 50s of that song, but I want to hear the first one, you know, <laughs> where where they do the 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 cool bass bit and and so on. Yeah. I, that's what I want to hear. And uh, I don't know. Uh, there's something about it being. You even said a bit ago that these are sort of documents of their time. Well, don't they serve as better documents of their time when they're still from their time? Yeah, I understand that, and I understand wanting to listen to them. So I don't think it's ethically wrong. I, I just think personally, being a big Taylor Swift fan, for me, I just, I don't understand not listening. I get listening to the original every once in a while, but I don't understand why you wouldn't primarily listen to the re-records because it is like this big thing where Taylor's like taking a stand against Scooter Braun and like 
really taking ownership over her catalog. So I feel like as a fan of her, like I'm going to listen to the versions that she feels she has ownership over and the ones that she worked hard to reproduce as opposed to listening to one that's going to mainly profit Scooter Braun, who she like has spoken out against. And but when you listen to music, are you honestly like calculating, ah, this benefits this person and, yeah. and 20% goes to this guy. I don't like that guy. I don't uh, Do we really listen to like music that not, way typically? Or has she put us in a position to listen to this music? That way? I feel like she's put it in a position to listen to it in that way, but I wouldn't consider it more of a financial thing. I would consider it more of like a social thing. Like I feel like I look at it as more of a, I'm standing with Taylor Swift, who I feel like has experienced a wrongdoing in the industry. And I'm standing with her and her decision to re-record her songs from like a social standpoint. Like I'm standing with that decision. I feel like it was strong for her to do and showed a lot of maturity. And, just like power and ownership over her catalog. So I'm not looking at it as like who's profiting. I'm looking at it as this man did something wrong to the artist I like, like took basically took her music out from under her. I'm not going to keep streaming that music that he took. I'm going to stream the music that she but I mean, to like, some extent, the, those music catalogs are a commodity. Yeah. I mean, they are. The, yeah. And, you know, and it was, for instance, Michael Jackson bought out the Beatles uh, catalog out from under Paul McCartney because he bid more than Paul McCartney could. And that's what ended their friendship. I understand that's disappointing. And Paul McCartney has every right to be upset about it and end his friendship with Michael yeah. Jackson over it. It's perfectly reasonable. But they are commodities. And, and so you invest in those commodities and she's a good investment, obviously. So I, I don't know. I mean, the problem, it seems to me, becomes partly personal that she doesn't yeah. like Scooter Braun. And I mean, he's probably not a very likable person. I don't <laughs> know him. Uh, and I, I, I imagine I wouldn't like him. There are a lot of people I don't like. Yeah. But is it is it that odd for somebody who's kind of a jerk to invest in something, and then I—I I don't know. It just seems weird. Like, yeah. what, what, what joy do you get out of this standing with her that no one knows but you in your room as you're streaming? I don't know. I think it's more of just like personally, I would rather, as a big fan of hers, and she has stated, "Hey, I don't like what Scooter Braun did. I'm releasing these new songs. Please listen to them instead of the version Scooter Braun has." As a huge fan of her and someone who streams her music all the time. I just feel like, for me, of co- like, I'm just like, of course, I'll just stream the new versions because if this is an artist I really respect and appreciate and has like put out a lot of music and I feel like a lot of time for her fans, so it's like, well, me just streaming this version of an album instead of that version of an album isn't really much of an impediment to my experience listening to it, so like, why not? So there's no real difference for you? Like, yeah, there's no, there's of course no, there's, there's smaller nothing, differences. Smaller differences, and but there's nothing... And it sounds more mature, wo- but... And you don't miss the less mature. Yeah, no. Like, I don't listen to the new version of Red, and I'm like, I miss the old version of Red. Or, like, Fearless. I missed the old version of Fearless. Like, I'm content with the re-records. And I guess for some people, it might not be the same way, but personally... No, there was a a hilarious article. I should have made you read it, actually, where... um, this young woman who's obviously a huge Taylor Swift fan was saying, oh, I'm going to I'm, I'm throwing them all out, all the old <laughs> versions, you know, and I'm going to miss them because I was really attached to them. But she says it's it's wrong, you know, and so there's this there's this weird sense of allegiance that I guess I don't yeah, quite I feel like that's get. a little much. Yeah. Destroying old copies. I don't think that's what she necessarily meant. I just think she meant, hey, from here on out, maybe just primarily stream my my new version. Yeah. Um, 
like I own 1989 on vinyl. And uh-huh. That's obviously not Taylor's version because she hasn't made that Taylor's version. Right, right, I right. stream Speak Now every day. I stream Reputation every day. Right. Well, you realize but, I have to buy just ethical standards. Yeah. Go upstairs and and burn your copy <laughs> yeah, of no, 1989. Like, I don't I, have a yeah, choice. And I have to Iris, delete. I have honestly. to remove every non Taylor version song from my podcast. <laughs> right, right. So it just really stinks. I wish like I could listen to them. Right. But, <laughs> Yeah, but like at the end of the day, I understand listening to old versions. I don't think there's anything ethically wrong with that. But if the newer versions are available, personally, I don't see why. Just don't listen. Just listen to those. Like, I don't know. I just don't see. Do you think there could be any ethical argument for listening to the original versions? Or is that only an aesthetic argument? Only only that it's I feel it, like sa- that, it sounds yeah. good for nostalgia or something. I can't think of like an ethical reason why you would want to listen to the <laughs> originals over the newer ones. I think that just comes down to aesthetic. Like I've heard a lot of people say, like a lot of Taylor Swift fans say, um, I listen I still listen to the older ones along with the newer ones because I like the sound, but I've never heard them speak from an ethical point of view because Taylor Swift fans are listening to her music normally are just going to side with Taylor Swift on her in terms of ethics and like so I guess that's what I'm still, I'm still confused by, and maybe it's a stupid point of confusion, but I just don't know where. It's it's along the lines of the sort of artist and the art argument, right? Yeah. Like like here, I'm not I'm not saying Taylor Swift's a bad person, but but for instance, like Richard Wagner, right, uh, an opera composer that that I admire greatly. I love his music. Terrible person, anti-Semitic, uh, just just a vile, yeah. disgusting person. And yet, you know, there are people who would argue that that there are sort of coded elements of a- anti-Semitism in his music, especially certain characters, uh, and I can understand those arguments and I can see some merit in them without necessarily thinking that that has to involve my, my aesthetic connection with, with the artwork, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe that's sort of bracketing. I'm using an extreme example to a certain extent um, because we don't have those same kind of ethical qualms in Taylor Swift. But what if we took that argument and we said, well, doesn't some of that bracketing happen here? I want to hear the originals because I do like the immature voice. I do like the the 80s production. I mean, here we have the example of the Def Leppard, right, where, where they recreate production done by Mutt Lang, one of the great producers of that period, and they're recreating production that he did without him. And there's something odd about that. Yeah. And, and yet, at the same time, there's something kind of fascinating. Like, th- there's a reason, perhaps, that Joe Elliott calls those forgeries. Because there's a way in which there's a kind of joy in a forgery. Yeah. The sense that, that what you're doing is getting one over on the powers that be. Right? Yeah. But to some extent, the forgery only works because there are originals that are out there. I don't know. Am I talking in circles now? No, no, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. And I think for Taylor Swift, like that power that she's kind of overcoming with her re-records is obviously Scooter Brown's possession over the original. Like I feel like the re-records are, the backbone of them is the fact she's upset because Scooter Brown took her catalog. Like I feel like that she's using that to fuel the re-records. And I think that's why, especially because she has such a huge fan base of, like, right. really, really dedicated fans right. who have, like, established themselves as, like, a huge and devoted fan base. 
I think that's why it's she's able to do this is because of the fact that her fans will, will, will just be like, okay, we'll listen to the new versions, no questions asked, you know? So, do, you, do you consider yourself a Swifty? Yeah, really for sure, for yeah? sure. You I don't? definitely do, yeah. So what is, what is that, like, what is the difference between being a Swifty and just being a fan of Taylor Swift? Well, being or? a fan of Taylor Swift, of course, is like, you enjoy her music, you listen to her music. And, like, you can agree with what she says and, like, listen to her re-records and be like, I'm standing with Taylor Swift. I feel like being a Swifty is like, you're a real fan of Taylor Swift. Like, you have listened to every song on every album. Like, you listen to her all the time. You're in the top 0.05% of listeners on Spotify. As we like know from, from the rap, from Spotify rap, <laughs> yeah. right? I feel like, and like, and not just following her music, but following her life. Like, you know, like, caring about what she has to say, caring about her opinions, like, stuff like that. Like, caring about, like, just knowing that kind of thing. And like... But what, how does that feel to you to identify so strongly with someone that you know so well who doesn't know shit about you. <laughs> That's the funny thing, I guess, about celebrities. Is I don't know, you just kind of like... Sometimes you just really, really connect with the message someone's putting across and like the music someone's identifying. And they'll never know you, but like... Personally, I, that doesn't bother me. Like, I'm not like, oh, Taylor Swift's never gonna know who I am. Right, like, no, no, no. I'm more like... Her music really resonates with me and like has helped me with a lot of situations in my life. And I feel like her, I've been able to connect to her music and really like use it to help me. And that's enough for me to be like an, a huge fan of her because like she has put out music time and time again that has resonated with me. So I'm, she's my favorite artist, you know, like it's uh-huh. that kind of thing. So I don't really care that she's not going to know me because like I think her music being in my life is enough for me. Like that's good. And in a way you feel like the music does know you, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah. A- Cause like I can, I know every word, every toast to a song. Like it's just always, I've always had them. It's that kind of thing. Like ever since I was like six, I'd be jamming to Taylor Swift. So it's like, I feel like I've just grown up with Taylor Swift and her songs. So. And that, that kind of feeds back into that ethical argument then, yeah. right? If, if the idea is that she is so much a part of you that you've kind of imbibed it and brought it into your mode of being, then it's kind of like if you find the originals now unhealthy because of their connection with someone else, it would be like a kind of poison with the thing that you like, yeah. right? Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting dynamic. I think that's why your fan base is so big and so devoted to her is because a lot of people just share that mindset. Oh. So it's definitely interesting yeah. to see what she's done and to see how people react to it. And maybe that's the key, right? I mean, the way in which what she's done slides into the way that people react to it, the way that aesthetics slide into ethics. And that the things that we love become a part of how we want to be in the world. 